Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Jonathan Swanson, co-founder, chairman of Thumbtack, and John Cobbs, co-founder, CEO of ApartmentList. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, bud. Thanks for having us. Cool. So question for you, Jonathan, what is Thumbtack and how did you think of the idea? Thumbtack's a marketplace for local services. So go to Amazon, buy any product, come to Thumbtack, and you can hire handyman, dog walker, a thousand other types of services. We came to Thumbtack in an untraditional way. Lots of entrepreneurs have a special connection to the market uh, they went after. We instead just wanted to start a big company. We were ambitious. Uh, we wanted to solve a big problem in the world. And so we said, if we're going to build a big company, we need to go hunting for big problems. And so we specifically looked for problems that affected a billion plus people. So every Sunday, we'd have brainstorm session, uh, talk about different ideas. We came up with lots of idiotic, idiotic ideas, but we kept coming back to local services as this huge market, $700 billion spent uh, every year. Very important in people's lives. If you get married or move or you have a kid, there's services wrapped around all these big life events. And yet the more we looked at it, the more it seemed really big, really important, but so old, right? The way you hire services hadn't changed in decades. You look through the yellow pages, make a bunch of phone calls and hope for the best. And in contrast to that, we saw Amazon totally redefining the way you buy products and we just felt like that was inevitable for services as well. So let, let's back up, actually. If I, if I come to you, Jonathan, or a talented CEO comes to you and says, hey, don't know what idea, just know it wanted, wanted to be really big. Is a framework, you know, find something that's really big and also really old? Or what sort of frameworks or criteria would you advise entrepreneurs for evaluating markets and thinking of big ideas? Yeah, so our, our, our heuristic was look for the biggest problems in the world. And I think that's still a good problem, a, a good heuristic. And... If no one has solved that problem in a unique or interesting way in decades, then it's an even more interesting problem. And that's why we kept going where we ended up. Yeah. So what were other ideas that you almost ended up pursuing or other problem sets that you almost considered solving? Or if you went out again to to do that same exercise that you might come across today? So at the time when we were brainstorming Thumbtack, the other idea we went furthest with was a financial aggregator that pull all your banks together, one place to pay bills, check your payments. And just as we were going out to talk to investors about this idea, Mint launched. And they were years ahead of us, had nailed the vision, clearly uh, were onto something uh, meaningful. And that was a bittersweet moment for us because on the one hand, someone had beat us to it and it felt like they were too far ahead for us to catch up. Uh, on the other hand, it gave us confidence that, hey, we did have a good idea. And if we go back to the drawing board, we can find something else uh, that could be bigger. And, you know, in retrospect, we were lucky because Thumbtack turned out to be a much bigger idea. Yeah. John, how did you come up with the idea of apartmentless? You know, for us, I think it was probably more the traditional kind of founder route of like, I experienced this pain point and felt it myself. You know, our vision is to own renting. And, you know, I believe every renter and every every family deserves a home that they love. And we built a entire marketplace with that ethos in mind. So it's a two-sided rental marketplace. Uh, supply side for us are listings. They come from property managers and landlords across the United States. And the demand side are renters like like me looking for a place to call home. And so uh, we only get paid when we connect those two. And so for us, you know, that's a 
a pretty powerful connection because you think about your personal kind of income statement, you know, your revenue comes from your, your employer and, you know, your biggest operating expense is typically where you call home, whether it's a mortgage or your rent. And we just knew there had to be a better way. And so, you know, I think like, like a lot of great businesses as a founder, I'd experienced these pain points myself. So I'm born and raised in a small town in Ohio, a place called Granger Township, population 3,900 people. Uh, so for me, moving to the big city, it was actually moving to Cleveland after I graduated from college at Case Western Reserve. And then um, I was a finance geek. So uh, ultimately ended up in New York and it was the move to New York that really kind of changed the way I, I think about uh, finding home. And, you know, it was, it was the first time that people had tried to you know, finding a place to call home in Cleveland is a pretty easy thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> finding a place in New York is a little different beast, but uh, it was the first time I heard of Craigslist. It was the first time that somebody tried to scam me out of like my deposit money. You know, people were trying to get me to wire money to London and um, people uh, doing the bait and switch saying, hey, one, two, three is open. Uh, let's check it out. When I got there, they say, oh, we just rented that one. But this other terrible place across the street that's 30% more expensive is available. So we should check that out. And so... You know, I just knew that there had to be a better way. And, uh, and so that's kind of, that was the impetus. Yeah. I think Craigslist is a good segue. We're here to talk about marketplaces and Craigslist kind of the OG marketplace, one of the OG marketplaces. Why don't we give sort of a, and you guys are building marketplace in real estate, you know, thumbtacks building one in home services, or has built one. Why don't you give sort of a brief overview of sort of the evolution of, of marketplaces starting from the history and from the beginning and where we are today? Yeah. I think. Kind of early, early days, you look at Craigslist, which I think was launched right around 1999. You know, so it's been 20 years now. It started as, Hey, let's build a classified provider for all classified areas. So you think about like big purchases that folks make or home services, big decisions, I'd say. So like the big categories on Craigslist were, you know, housing, mainly rentals, buying cars, buying tickets and finding service providers like, you know, Thumbtack provides. And so 20 years ago, you, there weren't that many websites. So they were like, let's just put all these categories on one website and everybody will come to our site. And they were right. It, and they took a lot of categories that I would describe as very episodic. Like I'm looking for to buy a house every seven years. I'm looking to buy a car every four years. Uh, and I'm looking to find a rental every two or three years. And what they did is they had this platform where you could go f- sell your couch in 20 minutes but you could also find a car and you could also find a rental. And so they took these episodic categories, but they built one centralized place where you could do all of them. So they're able to build a brand. And I think, you know, as these things kind of migrate over time, we find that like, as you get more specific in just one category, specifically in rentals, if people are searching every three years, that's pretty episodic. So like we have to find a way to engage with those consumers, even when they're outside of the discovery cycle. And so Craigslist, by catering in so many different categories, was able to establish that self as kind of the preeminent brand. And then I think the next turn on evolution was really in category specific. So people were like, Hey, I want to take down just this category and, you know, we're going to focus on just jobs and we're going to build a job website. And that's the only thing we're going to do. And I think, you know, the migration beyond that was really kind of the Uber for X economy. So it was like, Hey, what can we deliver on demand? And it was, taking over more of the experience. So rather than just being discovery, it was like, Hey, what, what type of service can we do? Service can we deliver? And I think that kind of brings us today, which is what we would describe as like managed marketplaces where consumer, like a lot of this is driven by net promoter score. Consumers, they don't want to have all these baton handoffs to different providers. They'd love to work with 
uh, one brand that they know and love to carry them through that and shepherd them through that experience. You know, Airbnbs is like probably one of my favorite examples of that. And so building the liquidity, but also kind of owning that entire experience. And then the final handoff is, you know, is when you get the keys and you're in Greece or whatever at your Airbnb unlocking the door. And so the managed services piece of this is really taking as much ownership over NPS as possible. And people, I think entrepreneurs found that like, man, when we don't own the whole experience, you know, I would, I would say Thumbtack and Apartment List fall in this category is like a lot of this is handoff. So we better make sure we're partnering with the right people to provide our consumers with a fair experience. So those are kind of the four phases, I think, of evolution. Yeah. Is there anything Craigslist could have done to not been so unbundled? To have, in the same way that, I don't know, it's been hard to unbundle LinkedIn? Well, I don't think they tried. You know, they're a bunch of anarchists. They're, they're crazy. I think had they been determined to innovate and win, they could have built verticalized marketplaces for all sorts of things. Airbnb, Thumbtack, Tinder. They just didn't seem to care. Yeah. What are spaces in which uh, marketplaces are uniquely helpful or, or have unique opportunities to be successful versus spaces where it's going to be tough to build a marketplace? Like what, what are the criteria of a, of a space that makes it more attractive to build a marketplace or not? So I'd say anytime you need to connect people, typically buyers or sellers, but not always. And the cool thing about marketplaces is they can happen in every industry. And as technology and the world advances, there's new opportunities for new marketplaces, right? Podcasts are super hot right now. There should be a marketplace for podcast guests and shows, podcast content and advertisers. You know, there's all this talk in longevity movement about uh, young blood for re rejuvenation. And I literally had an entrepreneur pitch me recently on a marketplace for young blood, which was, uh, you know, unthinkable. Uh, Don't tell people my idea, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's what's cool. You know, as new markets develop, there's going to be hundreds of new marketplaces, meaningful marketplaces in the next couple of decades invented. And, you know, marketplaces are built on top of everything else. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, like one way to think about it is, marketplaces can exist any, anywhere there's like an opportunity for, for liquidity. And it's like either high transaction volume or high transaction frequency that that's profitable at scale. And so I think a lot of great marketplaces start by like trying to solve a, a specific pain point and it's catered to kind of, I think we're getting more niche than we ever have before. So people want to solve this like one thing and just do it extraordinarily well and try to build liquidity around that. And I also think that like we, we start to see the transaction value of these things morph over time. So people, these marketplaces are going to pop up anywhere. There's big transaction, transaction value or frequency. And so I think a lot of like the incumbent kind of classified more traditional categories are getting pretty crowded now. Um, and so I agree with Jonathan. I think we're about to see like this emergence of like really niche marketplaces that kind of try to own or manage as much of the experience as possible. I agree with all of that. I would say one place that marketplaces sometimes go wrong is people try to build marketplaces for low frequency or uh, and low dollar categories, right? So if you have high frequency, you can build Uber, you can build you can build a brand. If you have high dollar, like Apartment List does or Thumbtack does, you can also build a brand. But if you're trying to do a marketplace for a locksmith, it's going to be super hard, right? You just don't need that often. It's not very much money in the line. And while an on-demand experience is great, you're not going to be able to brand to, to acquire the customers. And so it's our view that lots of these low-frequency, low-dollar categories have to be bundled. And so 
you know, Craigslist may have been too bundled, but vertical by vertical is not bundled enough in, in many cases. How do you think about it for apartment lists? Because you mentioned, you know, rentals every two years. So how do you make sure they, they're thinking of apartment lists when the time comes? Yeah, for us, it's a, uh, it's a huge piece of our product innovation is like, how can we stay top of mind in this consumer? And so, you know, the great news is when you have one of these very large kind of considered purchases, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for us to interact with that consumer. And so, you know, there's pre-search. You're just kind of starting on the web. You're like, okay, I'm trying to look for a rental. I'm going to ask my friends where to go. I'm going to search Google. And that kind of commences that search. And while you're in the midst of that, you know, hopefully spending time on apartment list and discovery, we're going to usher you to these, these different communities and kind of walk you through kind of step by step. And it, that transaction turns offline pretty quickly. And I think there's a big opportunity to bring it back online. And so, you know, I think uh, from a, a touring standpoint, people are still kind of getting in their cars and go check out 123 Main Street, see if it's the next home. And, you know, while I traditionally have also looked at my potential apartments the same way, like I really do think we're going to see a lot of reduction in cost and increase in technology to help discoverability. And, you know, I think that could be virtual reality. I think that could be self tours. I think there's a lot of like different ways you could go about that, that technology exists in 2019 that didn't exist 10 years ago that enabled or five years ago that enabled us to do that. But I also think about digitizing more of the experience and taking more ownership beyond just discoverability, but also kind of digitizing applications, lease signing, rent payment, utility payment. Like when I move to a new city, which I've done, you know, a number of times now, I shouldn't have to like hope that my place is waiting for me on the other end of my flight with all my stuff in a U-Haul. I should be able to you know, to move in and have my internet working and shouldn't have to like wait for PG&E to set up my utilities. And so the way I tend to think about our category is like anything that causes our consumers pain and contributes to this agony around moving is something that we are going to systematically solve kind of one by one. And because it's such a considered purchase that happens over the span of a pretty long period of time, and so the more that we can kind of take ownership over and put ourselves on the line with our customers, I think the more chance that we have to, to use technology, leverage technology and great people to build great solutions for the renter. Awesome. What do you guys think about spaces that have historically been hard to build marketplaces around like, I don't know, pharma or Hollywood or oil and gas, or like industries that are either highly regulated or like there's a lot of big purchases, but high nuances, like very nuanced and specific and relationship driven. What are your thoughts there? I think they're still going to be hard, but I think those are lots of the interesting ones left. Lots of the easy marketplaces have been picked off. You know, Craigslist is, there's no accident that eBay was created before Amazon and Amazon before Thumbtack. And, you know, there's now marketplaces for elderly care. That's way more complex, real world consequences than selling beanie babies on eBay. But there's tons of TAM in these uh, markets and uh, it's just going to take more determined entrepreneurs to actually build stuff. If we together, us three, were starting a fund solely focused on investing in marketplace or next generation marketplaces, what would our thesis be or where would, where would we be looking? Yeah, I, I think I would start with uh, what's the opportunity on liquidity. So think about is this a two-sided marketplace? Is this a three-sided marketplace? Hopefully it's two-sided marketplace just to, to limit the number of hands in the cookie jar on economics. But I think we need to look at how are we going to acquire supply? Is that, are we going to have to reacquire supply constantly? Same with demand. Like, are we going to have to keep paying for demand? I think one of the great things we've kind of stumbled upon at apartment list is like 
we acquire our supply side and we have super high retention with that, but it's, but it comes back to us like aligning incentives. Since we're only paid for a successful transaction, when a family finds a home, like the supply side wants to advertise with us because they're only going to pay if we're delivering something of immense value. And so beyond liquidity and thinking about acquiring both supply and demand sides, I think, you know, the second part of our thesis would definitely rally around aligning incentives. Like, um, because there are a lot of marketplaces that don't do it and, or don't do it at the scale that I think is necessary. And I think the most successful ones do. And so the more we see that and the more now that I believe we'll have ownership over more and more pieces of the consumer's life cycle on the product, I really believe that if you can get those pieces right, you can ultimately, it feeds back into itself and you get that virtuous cycle where you can start to win on liquidity. Yeah, just, I totally agree with that. I would build on it. I'd say there's typically three ways to build liquidity uh, or overcome chicken and egg. You can have a better business model and Apartmentless has done this. And if you have a better business model, you monetize better, you can acquire customers. You can build a tool that people like. Uh, Chris Dixon has famous blog posts, you know, come for the tool, stay for the network. Airbnb did that with their Craigslist posting tool. Or you can have some sort of scrappy subscale acquisition technique that probably won't work at scale, but will help you take leverage of some new channel to get you to get the flywheel moving. So I would look for at least one of those three tactics uh, that's credible to kickstart the flywheel. Which one did Thumbtack have? We used the scrappy acquisition technique. (laughs) We did a number of things. You know, the one that got us the furthest was leveraging SEO. Uh, We figured out how to sign up these professionals at scale, create content for Google, get that indexed, and... You know, that got us through the first few years. And now most of our traffic comes from other sources. But without that, we wouldn't have, you know, gotten out the gate. And the way I kind of, I was fortunate enough to be kind of driving in, in some lane on the same highway with, with Jonathan and Marco from Thumbtack and just seeing that from, from our category to see what the investment Jonathan made in growth. Like, I think that really opened up our eyes too to, to the power of focus and, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of shiny objects and distractions kind of on the path. But I remember Jonathan just saying, like, we're just going to spend this whole year to just, just work on growth. And that became like the hallmark of Thumbtack. And it drove a lot of precipitate, a lot of like really amazing events for the company. And so I think that was, that was, that really emboldened our team at apartment list too. And we just said, Hey, let's just be super relentless about this one thing until we get it right before we move on to something else. And what was the better business model that you guys have pioneered? There are kind of these incarnations of success based rental marketplaces at its most basic foundation. It's like a broker model where, you know, you're looking for a place in New York or San Francisco and Eli, the broker is going to come meet you and show you around. And like, if you like Eli, the broker, I actually have a broker friend named Eli. He's awesome. That's great. But uh, at scale, that that's very difficult to scale. And from an economic standpoint, uh, it's very difficult to extract the economics you need as a venture-backed business to provide the returns to your investors. And so, you know, there have been one other company that had done a great job of it. It was Rent.com. And it was, you know, we're fortunate to have the founder of Rent.com, Scott Ingram, as an investor in apartment list. He was a big believer that technology would one day exist where you could kind of um, stay with that renter through their life cycle and and work with the existing software in the space to kind of usher that renter through your experience and into their home and get paid for the aligned incentives. Back in the day, though, they didn't have that technology. So they were like, hey, renter, 
let us know if you move in. Uh, we'll send you a hundred dollar gift card in the mail. So they have renters like faxing a copy of their lease and say, I moved in. And so, you know, we just said, Hey, if we can do this with technology, then we also might decrease the kind of amount of disputes around it. Cause it's, it was unclear back in the day if people were telling the truth or not. And so that was the big innovation. It was hard to do. I mean, my co-founder, Chris Erickson, who's an amazing operator, spent the better part of kind of three years trying to perfect that with our team. And that was, you know, a pretty excellent foundation for us to, to begin the scale supply side. Yeah. The, uh, I read this Ben Thompson post a while ago on Zillow. I think he said something along the lines of, it's not just enough to be an aggregator, but you have to be involved in the transaction itself. Maybe in the way that opened door. Yeah. Maybe Zillow read it too. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's interesting. Like, you know, Zillow is just one of the preeminent kind of real estate platforms that, you know, we've ever seen in the United States. And that's, you know, my dad pr- probably until five years ago, probably could only name a half dozen websites, but he knew Zillow uh, because he could look at his neighbor's house and like right. what it was selling for. And I think, you know, what large companies sometimes struggle with is increasing kind of total addressable market. So I, my sense is like, they've got a ton of amazing f- folks at that business, but you know, the, the core of what they were doing all around real estate agents and providing leads for folks to find home and, Beyond that, they had a mortgage business, you know, they had a rentals business, they had dabble in home services stuff. And so, you know, I think my speculation for them is they saw what Eric was doing at Open Door and they said, hey, you know, that's something that we should be able to do too. Because you think about it, we should be able to, we have all this data and can't we kind of algorithmically determine which houses down to a street, down to, a, you know, what amenities they have. Can't we make a determination as how much this house is worth and how much we could sell it for? And so this, I think they're inspired by that vision that he had. And I think that they use that and their massive audience to try to roll out their own team for it. And they, they, you know, they, they grabbed Greg Schwartz from their rentals division to run it. So, you know, we, the market didn't react. I think the way that they had hoped, which is, Hey, we're expanding our total addressable market. This is going to be an even bigger Zillow than you ever imagined. Instead, I think the market reacted as, Hey, you're taking balance sheet risk. We thought we were investing in a high margin kind of technology business. What's happening here? And time will tell if it was the right move or not. You know, but I think one thing is for certain, the larger companies have different incentives for what they're trying to do. And we have 150 people, you know, four blocks away from here in Soma who are just focused on winning rentals. And then I go to sleep. I'm dreaming about how, do, how can we win this category? And so when you have and face bigger incumbents that can actually play to your advantage as a smaller, more nimble startup because you have the agility that they right. might not otherwise have. Well, and Zillow's going through this exact transition that Cobb's laid out and kind of the transition of marketplaces from just a meeting place at first to eventually this managed marketplace. Zillow was a place you met your... Um, real estate agent, and now it's a place you sell your home. Yeah. What's the next generation of marketplaces? You know, two years from now, three years from now, where are we? Where would we? It's interesting. I think we're going to start to hit our head on the ceiling of what the supply side will let us take over. So we as entrepreneurs are taught to figure out large, large markets and build better experiences than the incumbents. And you're almost in a way kind of taught to disrespect those that came before you, which I think is pretty dangerous. I like have a lot of admiration for the people that we compete with because it took a lot to build those businesses. I think a lot of people 
are going to try to take over as much of the experience as possible. And we're starting to see that in real estate. Like you're seeing co-living spaces, you're seeing people master lease out units. And the great news is when you're master leasing out a unit and, you know, for layman's, that's just like, Hey, we like this whole floor and the, you know, the second floor at uh, four, five, six main street, we're going to rent it out. And then we're going to turn around and see if we can rent it out, furnish it, rent it out for a different duration. There's a couple of ways you can really increase the economics in one of these units is flexible duration on lease, which we all want and furnished versus not. And so that is kind of a big evolution for our category because now <laughs> landlords aren't actually renting out to renters. They're renting out to businesses in San Francisco with a hundred million dollars in funding. And so that's your tenant. <laughs> and that's probably a pretty good tenant. I would hope at least for the, you know, as long as they can keep raising money and growing the business, but that presents new challenges. And some of those challenges are with lack of density you have this chicken and egg problem where you might not have enough supply. And so you're totally reliant on getting your demand, in this case, renters from other platforms that exist. So instead of investing in your own consumer experience, people will use Airbnb as a platform. And so what's happening then is people are really relying on Airbnb. Airbnb is really relying on its own brand and Google to get traffic. And so you kind of are a bit of a middleman on the demand side acquisition but you might be, you might have this really big unlock on that consumer experience. Yeah. And so I think this pendulum has swung way in the other direction of like, Oh, let's just, let's shoot for 95 NPS. How do we do that? And that's, that's great. But I think there's also a constraint, which is in our case, not all the landlords are going to let you take over that process. You're like, I've been renting this place out for 35 years and be damned if some kid from San Francisco is going to tell me how to do my job. And so, and that will be the friction. And so I think the next evolution, we'll start to see the boundaries being pushed on what's acceptable and what's not for the technology company to enter into. And we're also going to see investors try to figure out that line too. And they, they're starting to figure it out with companies like Open Door. We've talked about Compass is a tech enabled brokerage. It's really a brokerage. It provides great tools for brokers and real estate agents. And it's got a sleek UI, but they're, they're getting rewarded from that from the venture community. And so I think we're starting to see if the capital is there, then the entrepreneurs will go and they'll start to take those risks that maybe they weren't thinking about a service type business before, but now it's, it's not faux pas. Yeah. You mentioned briefly how to build uh, liquidity. What other advice might you give people who are trying to solve, solve the chicken and egg problem, whether focused on supply first or demand first, or how should they approach this? It would have been a pretty rough user experience if the first time I called an Uber, I had to wait, you know, 47 minutes, right? Uh, that would just be a taxi. And so most marketplaces need to start with the supply side. For us, that definitely held true. You know, we said in, in segmenting the supply side and thinking about it in different ways and treating each bucket differently. So for us, you know, there's 45 million households in the U.S. that rent. It's about 36% of the population is renting. And those buckets are like 15 million of them in 50, 50 plus unit large apartment buildings. Another kind of third of those are in two to 49 unit buildings, smaller apartment buildings run by mom and pops and some professionally run, but not really on software. And then the rest is all this really fragmented kind of single family homes and, and condos across the United States that are available for rent. And so when you think about building the supply side, it's kind of really picking your segment well, because if you misfire, you'll spend a lot of time and energy doing the wrong things. And I think for us, we always just looked at supply side relationships as an asset. And we said, 
let's just invest really heavily. And we started with large buildings. So even to this day, when you come to apartment list, even though, you know, I live in a two bedroom in Calhalla and we're passionate about that, you know, we, we have a ton of large apartment buildings because it was the easiest way for us to get this like perpetual inventory on the platform. And I think like one word of caution to, to entrepreneurs kind of looking to, to take on a marketplace is, you know, there are places to take shortcuts and there are places where you don't. And I think it saddens me because there's like a lack of competition in our space. I'm like, I get fired up by competition. Like I welcome it and I wish there was more because it's going to make our category bigger and it's going to make the Valley shine a bigger light on, on real estate and, and rental specifically. But the reason we have this like lack of innovation is because a bunch of early entrepreneurs in rentals just took shortcuts. They're like, they read what Chesky had done in Airbnb. They're like, you know what? Let's just scrape Craigslist. And there's a slew of companies like Padmapper, Live Lovely, Radpad. And you look back and like, you're like, why can't those guys raise money? Or why, you know, why haven't they been able to grow? Or why are they doing these kind of asset sales? And then you find out that they basically had been sued by Craigslist and, and you can't raise capital when you have this lawsuit hanging over your head because there's plenty of companies that don't have a giant lawsuit hanging over their head that, uh, that are out there that venture capitalists can look at. So for me, that's disheartening. And I would say like, don't shortcut supply, like growth hack. Great. Be scrappy. Great. Breaking the law. Like you put your investors in jeopardy, your employees in jeopardy, your business in jeopardy. And so we always, we saw that happen. And, you know, we could have had three engineers spin up scraping Craigslist over a weekend if we wanted to. We chose not to, which in the short term really hurt our supply. But in the long run, it enabled us to build a very differentiated business. And so I would just a cautionary tale for entrepreneurs is just like make sure that you're being very judicious with what segment you're picking on the supply side and be really smart with how you're going to gain scale and continue to, to bring that supply onto your platform as you grow. What do you think about marketplaces that don't yet exist? So there's one company for new behaviors. I think it's Pipa, maybe it's Papa, and it allows elderly to hang out with college kids and basically they pay them to hang out with them. In Japan, there's, you know, you want someone to play tennis with, you could ask a friend or you could just pay somebody. It's almost like TaskRabbit for, for getting people to do things with you and for you. What, what do you guys think about sort of <laughs> things that don't, don't yet exist or sort of new behaviors? I think there's a whole category of marketplaces and connecting people that will be super interesting. The marketplaces we have today, like a tender, uh, connect people on very surface level uh, attributes. But, you know, if you really want to connect people in the deepest way possible, you want to know their life mission, their values, you know, how they spend their time. And if your dating app's not asking that, they're not actually going to match you with the right person, right? So I think... There's a whole slew of marketplaces that could be built there, both for romantic uh, partners as well as for friends, for elderly. For work. It is interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about how, you know, we don't just go into a library and pick any, you know, the book nearest to us to find what book we read. We go to Amazon. We get recommendations. We, you know, could survey every book, detailed, you know, insights on those books. Yet for people, it's just sort of our neighbors. And I guess the closest thing we have to it maybe is Twitter or Facebook, but it should be a lot just smarter matching and there's lots of data out there about us that isn't leveraged right if you just connected my google account you could know what i'm reading thinking about shopping how i'm spending my money you know and we often go off uh, stated signals so i say i like this type of movie how about you connect your netflix and see what sort of trash you're actually watching (laughs) right 
or I say I like to read whatever type of books, but connect your Kindle and let's see. Uh, and I think if we could build marketplaces on top of that data that's already there, you could go really deep and not just for dating, you know, even at a thumbtack, you know, if you're connecting someone with a personal trainer, do they want to get their ass kicked? Do they want someone who supports them? Depends on the person's personality. And we don't know that today, but you know, if we could get that data, we could go way deeper. That's really interesting. So what would be our request for startups in terms of spaces or sub niches where we think, Hey, there's an opportunity there. And another way of asking that is if you guys couldn't run your existing companies and had to build a new marketplace with any skill set you wanted, uh, and expertise you wanted, where might you go pursue or recommend that others? I think the biggest white space is in global talent. So if you look at Airbnb and Uber, the two biggest kind of generational marketplaces right now, they both marketplaces, but another thing they have in common is that they've figured out how to monetize a very valuable but idle asset, right? Airbnb turns your spare bedroom into extra cash. Uber turns your car into extra income. But the most valuable asset in the world that's underutilized is not cars or bedrooms, it's people, right? There are billions of people in the world today whose talents aren't being utilized, right? And there's literally people with the same IQ, same potential, who are getting paid 100x more uh, just because of where they live. And so if you can build businesses that connect that talent that's not being harnessed today, you can make the world a better place. But there's also enormous economic upside. I think there's dozens of billion-dollar businesses to be built there. For people who say, hey, I want to utilize talent better, what might an example of that look like? Yeah, so I would literally think of every job category in the United States and think about, does it have to be done here? And if you can do that job with the internet, you don't need a passport to work here. You need an internet connection and the smarts and, you know, maybe the education. So, you know, certainly lots of development work, design, engineering. You know, I just saw a startup that's leveraging architects in other countries, executive assistants. There's, you know, dozens and dozens of categories that I think are interesting. And the categories are going to expand, right? Today, it's hard to really feel presence uh, with other people, but when virtual reality gets good enough, yeah. then you can maybe even collaborate and do kind of team-based work, which is difficult uh, remotely today. But a couple of decades from now, it probably uh, probably won't be. And you know, you know, marketplaces or markets, we don't have a, like marketplace for where you can live. Like it's, it's very difficult to to move. Governments aren't competing to uh, have access to your business. And, and where where could you see that uh, evolving over time? Yeah, well, I'm obviously obsessed with this. I think, <laughs> look, there, the reason there's all this untapped potential in the world is because most people don't live in societies that have property rights and basic infrastructure and good governance. And it's really difficult to move people around the world. It's just, immigration's hard uh, and people don't always want to do it. But if you could import someone else's best practices, their infrastructure, their property rights, you could take all that upside and apply it to an existing population base. And so I think this idea of starting new kind of charter cities where you take best practices and bring it to a place with tons of untapped potential is super interesting. And if you do it once, you can affect, you know, 10 million people. But if you do it a dozen of times, you can do affect a hundred million. But what's most interesting about that is I think the example it sets. Right. Singapore and Hong Kong, kind of their vibrancy and growth helped move a billion people towards capitalism. 
over the last few decades. And if you could have a few more signposts like that throughout the world, that'd be pretty powerful. Yeah. You know, just in the same way we were talking about Craigslist, the internet really enabled marketplaces. Do you see other platform shifts like, you know, VR, you mentioned briefly, or, or crypto or, or something else enabling vast, you know, new types of big marketplaces that didn't exist previously? It hasn't been proven out yet, but there's, you know, lots of attempts at decentralized organization in crypto and, you know, marketplaces that are moderated, but without a central authority. And that's pretty cool. I think you could do lots of interesting things with that. No one's actually done anything interesting yet, but there's a, there's a ton of white space there. Someone can get that to work. Guys, thank you for coming to the podcast. Any last plugs or things people should stay tuned for? Or where can people follow you online? We've got a really, really exciting product uh, roadmap and, and, and business uh, philosophy. And we're rolling out some really exciting things in 2019 and 20 and beyond. So, you know, feel free to keep tabs on apartment list because it's going to be an exciting couple of years. Yes. Yeah, same thumbtacks. We're one decade in, but it feels like we're just getting to the good part. And lots of the things we hope to build literally the first year, if you look at our first year product roadmap, we're now getting to. Turns out, you know, some marketplaces take a while. Things are a little harder than you expect, but we think uh, we can go 10 times bigger this next decade. So we're hiring and uh, we'd love for you to check us out as well. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.